Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, staff correspondent Mike Rivera speaks with Connor Tucker, a litigation associate at Irela and Manila in Los Angeles. This year, IPLJ published Connor's article regarding the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016. Connor explains the ways in which the DTSA was inspired by the Economic Espionage Act of 1996 and the massive, unexpected jurisdictional issues that were created by this newly expanded federal protection of trade secrets. To read Connor's article, please visit our website at fordhamiplj.org. Finally, a brief disclaimer from Connor. The opinions expressed are mine and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the firm or its clients. Enjoy. Connor, could you tell us a little bit about your work at IRL in Manila? So as a junior associate, you know, my role on cases can be anything from editing briefs to doing legal research to uh, writing briefs to taking depositions and, you know, arguing in court. There's plenty of things for you junior associates to do on any case. And so my day is usually a hodgepodge of a variety of tasks that relate to the litigation process. And uh, I understand you work in uh, intellectual property litigation. So could you tell us a little bit about why you chose litigation over transactional work? Like I said, I came to law from outside the lot, not really knowing what lawyers did. I had actually never been into a courtroom or I had never been, uh, I'd never seen what real lawyers did until my first summer when I worked as a summer clerk with the EEOC in Chicago. And so I didn't know about transactional law. I didn't know that it was a thing that lawyers did until well into my law school career. And I think that part of me would really like that work. But at the end of the day, if I went to law school, and when I did go to law school, I wanted to be able to stand up in court and make arguments and represent clients. So I chose the litigation track for that reason. So, Connor, you wrote an article for IPLJ's first book of Volume 28 regarding some of the jurisdictional issues of the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in the act and what inspired you to write the article? So, my interest in the act came from my summer associate here at IRL. I was working with a partner who, I mean, the DTSA had just been passed, and I was working with a partner to really understand what was the DTSA, how had courts interpreted it, if they had at all, uh, or and then what you know, indicia from the court system could we find about how they were going to interpret it, try to predict it. And I really enjoyed the work. I had never seen myself as a trade secret litigator being interested in trade secrets. In fact, when I went to law school, I never saw my, I didn't see myself as going into intellectual property law. I took an IP survey course my first year of law school and just fell in love with the complexity of intellectual property with all aspects of it, copyrights, trade secrets, trademarks, patents, um, and then kind of related species of privacy torts or right of publicity torts. And it was just so interesting to me that I kind of fell into that. And when I got to IRL for my summer, the DTSA had just been passed, and it was pretty much the exact same thing. You know, we took a careful look at it, and... I felt that there was something really quirky about the jurisdictional element that was not being paid attention to. And you can see this in the way that the Second Circuit 
in two separate cases, very close to each other, split on the Economic Espionage Acts, the EEA's prior jurisdictional element. And I thought that there was something there. So at the end of the summer, I talked to the partner and I asked if I could take it and do a research project and try to get a publication out of it. And he said yes. And so I, I took it and I, I ran with it with a professor at Northwestern. And we, so in my 3L year, I put together the research for it, which was a, you know, any research project of this scope is large and difficult to manage. But I also had the added layer of having to convince people that there was something there there. Most people, I think, overlook the jurisdictional element of some of these issues, mainly because of first-year constitutional law, where we are taught that Congress has a very expansive commerce power. And for some people, it's too broad of a commerce power. It's evidence of a congressional police power, which some don't think is in the Constitution. And for others, it's a way for Congress to ensure you know, uniform laws and make sure that Congress can legislate effectively. But just because Congress has that expansive power doesn't mean that they always exercise it. And there's some you know, pretty clear cases of them doing just that, exercising power that is not to the same extent as their constitutional power. But I, ha I had a lot of work to do to convince first my professor that this was an actual argument, and then other professors that I was working with along the way that this was something that was worth taking the time to study and dig into. And I think you can see that a little bit in the article. The article spends a lot of time trying to get the reader to shake off this notion that we can just take this to be the most expansive jurisdictional elements out there. And so I came to it from a perspective of this is curious and I want to look into it more and ended up in a position where... I was trying, I was hunting to almost try to prove myself wrong. And you know, everywhere I turned, there was another example of how it, it really was narrow. If you look, you take the jurisdictional element and you say, okay, I want to interpret this to the, to the broadest extent of congressional power that I can. Well, it doesn't have the term affecting commerce. Okay, does it have any equivalent terms? No. In fact, it uses the word used in, which the courts have said, limits the extent of congressional power. Well, is it like the Lanham Act, in which Congress has defined commerce elsewhere in the statute to be very expansive? So where is the definition of commerce for Title 18? 18 U.S.C. 10. That also has a restrictive definition of what commerce is that is limited to goods that flow across borders, unless there's some other language. And, and, many, and then you start looking at, well, is that the correct interpretation of 18 U.S.C. 10? And other crimes in Title 18, when they want to go beyond that limited jurisdictional grant, use the term affecting commerce, affecting, affecting. And so pretty much everywhere you turn within the text of the statute and within the structure of the statute, you start to see the constriction of the jurisdictional element. And I found that very curious. And it was pretty much everywhere I, I, I kept looking, I kept finding reflections of the narrowness of that element. So in, in your article, you spend a lot of time discussing the Economic Espionage Act as a sort of precursor to the Defend Trade Secrets Act. Can you tell us a little bit about what the EEA looked like prior to the DTSA? So the Economic Espionage Act was enacted in 1996, 
And it has a very simple purpose and a very simple structure. And, and the purpose was that Congress was concerned that the various state trade secret acts, I haven't looked at the number in a while, but I think it's 47 states have adopted some form of the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, and then three states still use common law to govern that. But Congress looked at that wide array of state legislation on this issue and said that we need to have a single national standard to deal with what they saw as foreign stealing of trade secrets. And so they created a very simple structure. It's There's essentially two crimes. There's economic espionage and then the theft of trade secrets. And economic espionage, 18 U.S.C., 1831, is focused on whether or not you steal or misappropriate a trade secret knowing the offense will benefit a foreign government instrumentality or agent. And then there's the theft of trade secrets, criminal theft of trade secrets, which covers what we would think of as kind of generic trade secret theft. It's not done for specifically for a foreign national. It has exception provisions, a few criminal forfeiture provisions, talks about confidentiality, says that the civil, you know, the attorney general has a civil action to enjoin the violation of trade secrets and then applies the DEA to conduct outside the United States. So it has an extraterritorial scope. And then a very limited definitions chapter, which just defines foreign instrumentality, foreign agent, and trade secret and owner. And so it's a very targeted statute that is designed to give prosecutors two relatively narrow tools in their box. And they, one of the things that trade secret aficionados will notice is that it doesn't have a definition of misappropriation. There's no, the EEA did not include a definition of misappropriation or a definition of improper means. And so those are, are dealt with and identified and defined by the criminal provisions themselves in 1831 and 1832. So it's a very specific, narrow, targeted statute that that has a very limited civil right of action that is just for the attorney general to bring uh, injunctions. And from that, you know, in the almost exactly 20 years between when that was enacted and the DTSA, there was a similar feeling that the criminal provisions were not effective and we're not being enforced enough such that companies and individuals who own trade secrets wanted to have an expansion of that, a, an expansion to include a civil right of action. And that's why you have the TSA, the Defend Trade Secrets Act. It's an outgrowth from the EEA. Bringing in something you mentioned earlier. So you say that you you studied history for a while. Uh, and so given how specific the Economic Espionage Act is, uh, do you know of some specific event that Congress is trying to sort of legislate around uh, or any particular reason why they passed the EEA when they did? I don't. The legislative history for both the Economic Espionage Act and the Defend Trade Secrets Act is not terribly voluminous, um, and I haven't dug into all the minutia of it. I do know that a lot of the EEA, from other scholars, we know that a lot of the EEA uh, was motivated by fear of coordinated international theft of trade secrets. So you've got, and I think a lot of this fear was targeted on, in the 1990s, was targeted on China and Taiwan and other areas where intellectual property laws were perhaps not as strong as they are now, or intellectual property law norms were not as strong as they are now. 
but I don't know of anything specific that brought it out. It's entirely possible. I mean, it might be the case, but I don't know. So you, you would sort of see the DTSA as an expansion of the EEA. Is that right? I think so. In some ways, it is an expansion. It sits uncomfortably with the Economic Espionage Act. I'm giving a talk at the American Intellectual Property Law Association spring meeting in May on the extraterritoriality provision and whether that applies to the DTSA. Section 1837, which is the extraterritoriality provision of the EEA, you know, was not edited in 2016. It refers to offenses. You know, if an offense or an offender, if part of the offense was committed inside the United States, there is jurisdiction. If the offender was a U.S. citizen, a national, or a U.S. corporation, there is jurisdiction, regardless of where the trade secret theft occurred and so where the misappropriation occurred. And so the question really is, does that provision apply to the DTSA? And that's an entire other conversation. But I think what 1837 shows you is that the DTSA in some ways is an outgrowth and is not an outgrowth of the EEA because they didn't touch the provision. They didn't edit it, even though when they went in for the DTSA, they kind of used a scalpel on on some other provisions to, to tweak the law. They didn't touch 1837. And that's kind of odd because it puts us in a difficult position where we don't know for sure whether or not the DTSA, the civil right of action, applies extraterritoriality. And I, I give that example just to point out that although the DTSA and the EEA are related and the DTSA has been appended to the EEA, the DTSA feels very much like its own act. It adds definitions of misappropriation. It adds the definition of improper means, largely modeled on the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, which many of the state trade secrets acts are modeled on as well. It provides its own civil right of action, and it creates an entirely new, to the trade secret world, an entirely new remedy in the ex parte seizure provision. And so in some ways, it is an outgrowth. In other ways, it is its own independent act. And so I think a lot of scholars have not yet figured out whether or not to refer to the EEA as a, as a whole, of which the DTSA is a part, or to really think of them as two distinct acts of Congress. So you mentioned there a little bit about state trade secret law. And at the end of the article, you conclude that the DTSA is not a federal version of state trade secret law. Can you just explain to our listeners how the DTSA tends to differ from existing state laws on trade secrets? So I, one of the primary differences is is the article itself. You know, there's no, in the UTSA, in the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, and as far as I know, no state Trade Secrets Act, and if you, one of your listeners knows of the state's Trade Secrets Act that qualifies which trade secrets are, you know, have protection, I would love to hear from them. But as far as I know, the qualifying phrase, which is the focus of the article, doesn't exist elsewhere. It doesn't exist in other areas of trade secret law. In fact, the relationship requirement only exists in the DTSA and then in a part of the EEA that deals with the kind of vanilla theft of trade secrets, not the international espionage version of trade secret theft. So I think that's one of the primary things is that the statute itself is limited in a way that the, the state trade secrets are. And that, that provides a few implications, one of which is that 
the trade secret has to be related to a product and that product has to be used in commerce, then you end up in a situation where we might have a revival of the continuous use doctrine. For a long time, trade secret law required that the trade secret actually be used, right? You couldn't have a secret that wasn't used and then enforce that secret against others. And the Uniform Trade Secrets Act and the State Trade Secrets Act have really weeded that requirement out. And I'm not certain about the common law jurisdictions, but I know for a significant number of states, the continuous use requirement is gone. Well, with the DTSA, you have a requirement that the trade secret be related to a product or service, and that service be used in interstate or foreign commerce. So we end up in a situation where well, maybe we revive the continuous use doctrine. And it's not entirely clear, but it's an implication that requires further exploration from the article. And so that, that's one very big difference between federal and state trade secret law. The second piece, which I think is interesting to think about, is that when you think about the definition of a trade secret, what it means to be a trade secret, there's really three elements. It has to be secret. It has to derive independent economic value from its secrecy. And the owner has to take reasonable measures to keep it secret. Now, the secrecy, there's a question that develops in trade secret law about secret from whom. Does it have to be secret from everybody? Does it have to be secret from Joe Sixpack? Does it have to be secret from CEOs? Or does it have to be secret from research and development professionals? And that's a question that is dealt with on a state-by-state basis. And the before the DTSA, the federal circuit courts had split on the issue. And some had said that it has to be secret from the general public, and others had said that it has to be secret from the relevant economic population. So that it has to be secret from those who would be able to utilize the secret. So it, the difference between, that would be the difference between Joe Sixpack and your R&D professional. The DTSA modifies the definition of federal trade secret to be the economically relevant population. It solved that circuit split. And so what it means to be secret, depending on how state law weighs this question of secrecy, whether or not the the audience from which the information has to be secret is the general public at large or a more specialized subset of that population, which is the economically relevant population, that balancing and what it means to be secret on the federal level, it's the economically relevant population. On the state level, it might vary. And that's just one example. And I think For people who think that the DTSA is simply a federal right of action for trade secrets that that has always been there, or that there is a necessary uniformity amongst the states such that the DTSA is just simply a baseline for the states, I think they need people who advocate those views really need to look at the text and query whether or not it's going to come out the same way. I mean, it might. It, It might, in many cases, just be a federal version of a state trade secret case, but in others, it might not. And so I think it it really does require a close look at what the differences between the two are, depending on what state you're in uh, and depending on how trade secret law has evolved in that state. So if we sort of had to have like an intro to this podcast of a way to simplify what the issue is for listeners who might not be familiar with trade secrets, is there is there anything that you might say? Or I guess that's sort of as a, a primer. Yeah, I think that question that you led with is actually a very good one. 
which is why are we bringing the complexity of federal commerce clause jurisprudence into what might otherwise seem to be a very simple statute that purports just to give a civil right of action to owners of trade secrets against those who misappropriate them. And there's a few reasons for that. The first one is Commerce Clause jurisprudence is not strictly relevant to the DTSA because the DTSA does not go to the bounds of what the courts have already articulated is the extent of Congress's power. The key thing to understand about the DTSA is that it goes less than that. And it's uncertain whether they meant to do that or whether or not they ended up doing that because of other concerns primarily because they didn't want to preempt state trade secret law. But trade secret law and trademark law as a related species are not within Congress's inherent authority to regulate. The Constitution provides them the inherent authority to regulate patents and the inherent authority to regulate copyright. But for the last 120 years, trademarks and uh, what might be called commercial torts are not in that intellectual property power, are not in the patent and copyright clause. And so the extent to which Congress uses its Commerce Clause power determines the extent to which Congress meant to federalize trade secrets, because they can't regulate the trade secrets that are beyond their reach. It's unlikely that there are any trade secrets that are actually beyond their reach, but they don't have to reach every single trade secret. And one of the few things that's pretty clear from the legislative history of the DTSA is that they didn't want to step on the state. And so they wanted to leave a lot of these state trade secret acts unpreempted and uninterfered with. And that creates a tension because they also wanted to create uniformity. And so the jurisdictional element is a way that they did that, whether they did it intentionally, whether they, they meant to exempt some trade secrets from the DTSA or whether they did it haphazardly, they didn't understand the implication of not using affecting commerce or the implication of using used in in the jurisdictional element is still up for grabs. But that's the text that we have. And the system that they have set up doesn't reach every single last trade secret. The real work of this article is just for the simple realization that the jurisdictional element of the DTSA has limited the number of trade secrets that Congress federalized. They might have done it intentionally. They might have not known what they were doing, but the text is what we're stuck with. And the implications from that are really important to grasp and really important to pay attention to because it might end up creating kind of eddies of trade secret law, one of which is the fact that the continuous use doctrine might be revived, another of which is that the relevant audience for secrecy, you know, it doesn't have to be secret from Joe Sixpack, you know, any ordinary person, or does it have to be secret from research and development, R&D individuals, that might differ from state to federal court. And so the, the core of the article is just getting people to recognize that the jurisdictional element creates a twist in federal law that might not exist in state law. And it creates that twist because Congress can only regulate trade torts, like trade secret misappropriation through the Commerce Clause power. And it could, if it wanted to, federalize all trade secrets and create a floor very similar to how the trademark law in the Lanham Act serves as a floor of federal protection. But there's a lot of reasons to believe that it, it hasn't done that. And that's important to grasp when you're thinking about how state and federal trade secret law interact with each other. So you've mentioned, you know, that really the text is all that there is to work with. 
because that's what's there. That's usually what the courts look at. And, and there hasn't been a whole lot of legislative history around it. Do you think moving forward, you know, Congress is eventually going to have to legislate around this again or that or the courts are going to find what, what you're finding here, uh, that, that it's not a floor? So I think courts have started to come along my road. You see a few district courts since the article has come out, but not citing the article. You see a few district courts being very insistent about plaintiffs pleading the interstate commerce element. You know, it has to be pled in the complaint. I've seen, for instance, volunteer dismissals of complaints because the interstate commerce element wasn't pled. And of course, those are refiled with the interstate commerce element being pled. But you're seeing courts and litigants realize that the jurisdictional element requires more attention than than it might otherwise have, you know, if it was an, if it was any other statute. And so I think it's, it's really going to depend on what courts do. Now, we have a little bit of a sense of what Congress might do, because in two cases in the Second Circuit, under the Economic Espionage Act, the Second Circuit defined the jurisdictional element of Section 1832 narrowly enough to reverse a conviction of an individual who had allegedly stolen uh, source code. Congress responded to that relatively quickly by amending the Economic Espionage Act to the current jurisdictional element. So the original jurisdictional element of Section 1832 says whoever with intent to convert a trade secret that is related to or included in a product that is produced for or placed in interstate or foreign commerce and by narrowing that to say used in or intended for use in interstate or foreign commerce, Congress was attempting, you know, they're, they're trying to tweak it. You know, so I think if circuit courts come out and say, hey, listen, Congress, you didn't go as far as you thought you did, um, and we're not going to hold people to that, then you, you might see Congress change it. Or Congress can look at that and say, oh, you know, that's exactly what we meant, and we don't, we don't want to change it. I think Oftentimes we think of the lawmaking process as Congress sets the laws and the courts interpret them. But I think, especially intellectual property law, there's much more of an interaction between the courts and Congress. And that interaction is important because the courts might point out to Congress that they've done something wrong and Congress can change that or shift it. Or the courts might point out that something is is a certain way and Congress says, oh, you know, that's what we mean. That's we have a reason to like that. And I don't know which way it's going to go. I don't know if Congress is going to take a look at, I don't know if, how courts are going to come out. And then I also don't know if Congress is going to take a look at how courts come out and say, you know, that's right or that's wrong. I think there's a high likelihood that, you know, that they might, they might tweak it. I think also there's some very good reasons to believe that the balance that is struck here, even if it's unintentional, is actually quite a good one because trade secret law touches on a lot of other very important areas of law, including economic mobility, employees' rights, free speech. And one of the balances that the DTSA strikes is with this employee concept of employee mobility. So there's a concept in trade secret law called the inevitable disclosure doctrine, which in its purest form says that if your new job is of such similarity to your old job that you cannot help but use the trade secrets that you gained from your previous employer, the courts can enjoin, they can prevent you from being employed by your new employer. You know, it cuts off in certain ways employee mobility. And certain states have different approaches to this. California, for instance, says the inevitable disclosure doctrine is not allowable. You cannot, 
through trade secret law prevent employee mobility. It was more nuanced than that, of course, but you know, it's they don't accept the inevitable disclosure doctrine. You know, the DTSA initially might have adopted the inevitable disclosure doctrine, but some senators, uh, one of which was from California, were very concerned that it did not. And so it actually leaves in place the state's balancing of this issue of employee mobility. The DTSA does not touch that issue and is agnostic on that issue. The interpretation proposed by my article provides another avenue to think about employee mobility. So one of the things that we're very concerned about with trade secrets and employee mobility is does the employee know what they can and cannot take with them to their new job? And if you're limiting the federal protection of trade secrets to those that have a sufficient relationship to a particular product or service, you're providing a significant amount of clarity to employees who are thinking about moving jobs, right? And then, you know, other confidential information, information not necessarily related to a particular product or service, that information would be governed by contract law or underlying fiduciary duties. It's not that that information is not protected. It's just that the employee, when they're moving jobs, knows, oh, you know, this is a silly example, but, you know, say someone from one large beverage company who knew the recipe of a particular uh, cola decided to move to another large beverage company that also had a competing cola. The DTSA makes it very clear, even if the contracts were silent, the DTSA makes it pretty clear that you can't take the recipe of the first cola and give it to the, you know, use it in your other job at, with the second cola. But we know that that's the case because of the, the tight relationship between the information, the secret that is protected and the product. And so if you have this tight relationship between the, the product and the secret, you provide further clarity to employees on the employee mobility front. And I think that that's really important because other aspects of employee mobility really depend on background state law or fiduciary duties or what the contracts are. And so this is a long way to get back to your question, which is, you know, how is Congress going to react to this? If they did it intentionally, the system will probably work. If they didn't do it intentionally, they're going to take a look at what the courts are saying and how the courts are interpreting this, and they'll make a decision like they did in 2012, whether or not they want to edit the act or leave the act as it is. And I think what they might find is that there's actually some pretty good reasons to insist on this tight relationship between the product or service and the trade secret that go beyond even what I mentioned in my article, you know, that involve employee mobility and, and that there might be some ex post rationalization for why to have this relationship. I think that that kind of fairness element, that idea that employees should know what information they can take and what information they can't take with them, that fairness element is important. And I don't think that we should necessarily run past it too quickly, especially where the DTSA doesn't have a background definition of fiduciary duties. Right? It's not necessarily clear what the federal quote unquote duty of confidentiality is going to be under improper means. And if federal courts just import whatever the state duty of confidentiality is, we might have significant conflicts amongst the various district courts and then perhaps even the circuit courts regarding even what the DTSA means in terms of improper means. So the limitations I, can, I propose in the article helps us really cabin the implications and understand where they're going to sprout from. I, I do have one last question if you do have time. I was just wondering if you had any advice that you might give to law students who are interested in pursuing intellectual property litigation. 
you know, I don't know that I'm qualified to give advice to students who are interested in it. I think the best thing to do if you're interested in intellectual property litigation is to go out and try it. And what I mean by that is find a good summer program, figure out where you can intern that is going to have IP for you to, to look at and try and enjoy. Because IP is a very interesting area of law. There is almost under the undercurrent of a lot of IP is the First Amendment. There's constitutional concerns that run across IP from Commerce Clause concerns in trademark and trade secret litigation to patent trademark clause concerns in uh, patent and copyright clause concerns in the in the patent and copyright spaces to First Amendment concerns in copyright to First Amendment in trademarks, First Amendment issues in the host of torts that kind of surround these. It's a complex, interesting, nuanced area of law. And the best way to figure it out is to go get your hands dirty and really think about it. I think the other thing that students can do is start thinking early about the business implications of intellectual property. And what I mean by that is, why is IP important to businesses? How are they using it to build their business? How are their products dependent upon it? You know, a, a good brand and a good trademark and an enforceable trademark is incredibly important to any company. But it's a, it's a complex process and it, it requires you to think intelligently about what the business needs out of the trademark, what the business needs to do to keep it. And, and so if you're thinking about, I mean, I think this is good advice for anyone who's a young lawyer is to be thinking about what the business implications of what they're doing are. But in IP as well, if you're thinking about IP, you should be thinking, well, where are the business implications and how is IP interacting with those? Well, thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, Connor. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do that. You're welcome. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Our audio mixing this week is by Patrick Ho. Special thanks to staff correspondent Mike Rivera, and a huge thank you to Connor Tucker for being part of this week's episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.